But when you get older, it's not cookies anymore. It's, it's other things, right? There are other distractions. There are other things that, that capture us and captivate us. And that's really where we come close again to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to Philippi. And as I've entitled it, Free Indeed. Now, now we've used that title, Free Indeed, using Jesus' words as, as our Lord said, if the Son will make you free, you will be free indeed. That you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that's what is happening in this letter. This is a discipleship letter. Paul doesn't know this could be his last act of discipleship with these Christians whom he cares for deeply. We've seen that expressed through the letter. It's a very personal letter. It doesn't follow all the normal forms of a letter. For instance, he doesn't start with the first half of the letter is doctrinal truth, that then the second half of the letter is a series of exhortations or commands, things that we should do because those first things are true. You look at the book of Ephesians, for instance. That letter is very much built that way. There is a first half of this is doctrine, instruction, teaching, truth, and then the second half is the application of is this is what you should do because these things are true. But the letter to, the, to Philippi is a little more personal than that. It doesn't have that same structure. But it is a discipleship letter about freedom. Free indeed. Free in Christ. To be who he has called us to be. What we want to do today is I want to take... I want to gather up this letter. We have been going through the book of Philippians for several weeks, each, each week considering a, a kind of a paragraph at a time. And uh, so for the past, I think, three months, we've been working through Paul's letter to Philippi. What I want to do now, just before Palm Sunday and Easter, is I want to gather it back up. Sometimes you can lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes we can lose sight of the whole as we have examined carefully individual parts. So this time, I want to gather together everything back into a whole and see if we can get one main thrust that we'll take away from this letter and a, a big idea in mind as we read it in the future. And just to be clear, because sometimes I'm not, just to be clear, let's, let's put that right up front. So if you check out later, if I put you to sleep, let, you know my side story. Nothing to do with the message at all. My daughter, we're talking with her on the phone, our daughter Ruth in, in, in Zimbabwe. We're talking with her by phone yesterday. And afterwards, she sent me a text. She said, because I'm the baby whisperer. There's something about my voice that puts our little grandson to sleep. We experienced it just after he was born. He'd be calling, crying and crying. Grandpa would take him. And I would just talk to him. And he would just go right to sleep. So they called me the baby whisperer, okay? And so they, funny, they asked me because they, they saw him react even with my voice over the phone. So they said, could you record reading a couple of psalms and then, and then send that to us and we can play that for Jamie and he'll, he'll, he'll hear your voice and he'll learn your voice and they're thinking also he'll go to sleep, right? I said, no problem. The same thing happens in church all the time. So... So if that happens later, I want, to, I want you to have it clear right up front. This is what the letter to Philippi is about. So we're going to put a long, lengthy statement. This is the book of Philippians, these four chapters, right up on the screen, right now. There it is. Paul is free. He's free indeed. Paul is free from a self-focused view 
of his own hardships to see God working redemptively in those hardships. That's chapter 1. He's free from a self-focused view that he sees God working in the midst of those hardships. Why? Because that's how God worked redemptively in Christ. No one endured more unjustly than Jesus did for us. And yet in that, God is not only working redemptively in ways that will vindicate Jesus, he was humbled even unto death, and therefore God has highly exalted him. Crucifixion is followed by resurrection. And for us also, that he does that, that he might come down into the mess that we are in and bring us out of it and reconcile us to God, that God is working redemptively in the midst of the most unjust thing that has ever occurred on planet Earth. So Paul is free from a self-focused view of his own hardships because that's how God worked redemptively in Christ Jesus. So it is in that kind of sacrifice for the sake of others that we will know Christ more fully. If that's where he is, if that is his greatest work, then that's where we'll know him. In sacrifice, we ourselves will know Christ more fully, and that's how we'll live out our faith in the midst of Specifically, he describes various conflicts, worries, or needs. That's the book of Philippians. Paul's letter to Philippi in four chapters. To say it a slightly different way, maybe we can make it a little more personal, God is working in you, even through hindrance and hardship, because that's how God redemptively worked in Christ. And it's how we'll grow in knowing him, and God wants you to know him. So he'll allow some hardship. He'll allow some difficulty because in there he'll work like he did in Christ that you would know him by trusting in troubles and trials that God is working in us, through us, and for us. Free indeed is free from me. Free indeed is free from me, from my ambition, from my shame, from my pride, from my desires. It's to be free to join in God's redemptive working through sacrifice, through giving of myself for reconciliation of others. Reconciliation of others together, reconciliation of others, restoration of their relationship with God. That's where God is working. When Jesus wrote about discipleship, or when Jesus spoke about discipleship, his, his description of it fits Paul's discipleship letter, which calls for sacrifice and self-denial for the sake of others. Because Jesus says this about discipleship, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, if anyone would be my disciple, is that what you want to be? Say, I want to be not merely a so-called Christian, I want to be a follower of Jesus. That's hip today, by the way. To be a Christian, <laughs> to be a follower of Jesus, that's today, okay? So we're going to be followers of Jesus. And it implies it's more than just I believe the right things. That's what's suggested there. I want to be a follower of Jesus. And if I want to be a follower of Jesus, he said, let, let them deny themselves, sacrifice, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever would guard their life, whoever would protect and put safeguards around, and this is mine. Whoever would save their life will lose it. 
But whoever will lose their life, will give themselves away, will pour themselves out for the sake of others, whoever will lose their life for my sake will find it. Why? Because we were made in the image of God. We were made to live out that image, that others would see the likeness of God in humanity. That's what we were originally created for. We fell from that. The essence of that fall is selfishness. The essence of the restoration, the salvation from that fall is then other-centeredness again, which we're called to in this letter. The giving of ourselves away for others, even as Jesus, who comes as the Son of God, as the express image of God. Nobody looks like God like Jesus does. And yet that's the image that's being restored in us, that we are being transformed into the same image by the working of the Holy Spirit. So it's no surprise then that we would lose our lives. That's where we'll find it, what you were made to be. You may be wondering, what was I really made for? What am I really here for? Where will I really find fulfillment? And there it is. Jesus said it. Give yourself away. That's where you find life because that's where we know him. So here's Paul. Paul is not in Philippi. Paul is in Rome. Paul is in a a home confinement awaiting an appearance before the emperor on these false charges that were brought against him over two years earlier. And while he is waiting, and he's waiting to find out, are his accusers even going to follow along and, and present a case against him to the emperor? And maybe they never show up. But while he's waiting, he's in confinement. He's able to be in confinement rather than in a dungeon because the church in Rome has helped provide for his needs, and now Philippi has also sent a gift to provide for his needs um, a, a place for him to live and food to be provided so that he can stay in, the, in that situation. And while he's there, he's thinking of Philippi. What does Paul see as he gazes out the window and remembers Philippi? What does he see? I think Paul sees a girl. Probably a teen girl, maybe a young teen. She's owned by others. She's used and abused by others who are happy that this girl is demonically oppressed and under the control of a demonic spirit because they can rent her out. Other men will pay her masters, her owners as a slave. They will pay to use her for their own benefit, for their own advantage. It's a different kind of trafficking, maybe then than now, but still uses that girl for the benefit of others. And yet, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets that girl free. Paul sees a woman named Lydia. She's a busy businesswoman. Maybe she hardly made it. Maybe she came in late to that small prayer gathering there by the river that morning. But she heard this gospel of Jesus that Paul was describing and she believed it. And she pushed other priorities aside and said, if you believe that I've genuinely believed in Jesus, if you believe my testimony of faith in him, then you come to my house. I will will provide for your needs. I will host you while you're here in Philippi. And a busy busy businesswoman becomes a, a generous host. He remembers a brutish jailer. Remember him after Paul and Silas were were, um, seriously beaten. 
flogged. They, he, they, they give him instructions, and he, and he chains them in the stocks in the inner dungeon, the, the uh, tightest and worst place in the prison. And yet this brutish jailer becomes a gentle servant washing their wounds, inviting them into his own home, to his own table. He asks them the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they gave him the answer, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he was, and he was baptized that very night. Paul remembered these kind of stories over and over again. And what he remembered as he remembered these stories of, a, of a, what began as a small band outside the city, outcasts, down by the river, have grown into saints of the Most High God whose citizenship is in heaven and whose testimony has reached as far east as Jerusalem and as far west as Rome. Everybody's heard of what God has been doing because God has been at work in this church. When Paul looks at the church of Philippi, he, re- he sees deacons and elders as well. He mentions them early in chapter 1. Because he sees a church that is not dependent on Paul any longer. Paul could come or go and this church will continue. God has raised up leaders and God is working in them and through them. All of this, Paul sees in his mind, remembering the reality that he expresses as one of those Multiple quotables in the letter to Philippi. This book is, is, is full of more verses per page that you like to, to memorize and remember and recite to yourself and others. There's more quotables in this book per page than probably any other in the Bible. And one of those multiple, multiple quotables is, is in verse 6 of chapter 1. That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And that's what God has been doing in Philippi. And that's what Paul sees when he looks out that window and sees Philippi and this church there. I invite you to turn again to the book of Philippians one more time. You'll find it, if you're using the church Bible, you'll find us on page 980. And I've, I've titled this Gathering Together. I've titled this Free to Die is Free to Live. Because that's how Jesus described discipleship. And that's what Paul invites them into. He expresses it in chapter 1 through his own testimony. In chapter 2 through Jesus' example. And in chapter 3 that nothing else matters more and should get in the way. And then in in chapter 4 the ways that we actually step into that practically one with another. So free to live or free to die is free to live. Paul is living out in chapter 1 that reality that Jesus expressed in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done. Paul is, is expressing now, he's living in a full experience of what you saw the first green shoots of on his own confession on the road to Damascus when he sees Jesus in his glory and he says, Lord, What would you have me to do? Instead of what I want to do, he's freed from his own ambitions. He's freed from his own plans for Damascus that day. And he says, Lord, what would you have me to do? And that day, on that road, he begins walking in that. And it took him all the way 
to confinement in Rome. And that's going so well that he's inviting them to join him in it. He's inviting you and I to join him in it. You say, well, wait a minute. Is that something to be invited into? Let's, let's pause a minute that Paul, Paul is, is this, this verse, but Paul's in confinement. How has that worked out good? Where is God working there? He says, I want you to understand. He writes to them. He says, this, this confinement, my imprisonment, and this sounds like it doesn't go together, my imprisonment has turned out for the advance of the gospel, for further spreading of the gospel, even into Caesar's household, even among the Praetorian guard. Guys that never come to the synagogue and hear me there, they're hearing me now. The gospel is advancing. He says, and others who, because I'm confined and can't go out preaching, they're stepping up to the opportunity. They're saying, hey, Paul's sidelined. Maybe now's the time for me to be known, for me to be heard. And they're out there. And maybe some of them aren't doing it for the right motives. And Paul says, I don't care. Jesus is being preached. And he's confident that even if their motives are a little self-serving at first, that's okay, because what? He who began a good work in you He'll be faithful to complete it. He will work. He'll mold. He'll transform. He'll work off those rough spots. And he's still doing it because that's exactly what he's faithful to do. So Paul says, I am not, I am not imprisoned by these circumstances at all. God is doing his work. Let's pause there for a moment. If Paul knew that God was working even through an unjust imprisonment on false charges and others are taking advantage and maybe trying to steal his position as a, as a leader in the churches, how do you and I know that God is working when everything seems to be going wrong instead of right? How do you know God is working in the midst of that? Because those are the times when you'll hear a voice in your ear whispering into your heart that says, See? God's not really involved here. God doesn't care. God's not helping. If, if, if God cared, God wouldn't allow that to happen, or God would change this, or God would work a miracle here, or God would answer your prayer the way that you want it answered. So God's not doing that, so God's not working here. And yet, God, the ways that God works are not always according to our ambitions, our plans, our agenda. How do I know that's true? How do I know I'm not just consoling myself? He anchors that on perhaps the deepest theology in all the New Testament concerning Jesus and his humility. How that Christ, though he was equal with God, he didn't hold on to that. He didn't save his life as equal with God. But he laid it aside and he took upon himself humanity and came in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death on the cross. Therefore, through all of that, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name. Now, that deep theology that we spend some time talking about even during the Christmas season last year in the Incarnation, that deep theology uh, his point is not just, hey, there's some really cool theology you guys need to know. That's where he angers this experience of his confidence that God's working in the worst of times because God was doing his bestest of work in the worstest of situations, the most unjust circumstances that have ever occurred in human history. 
no matter what else we've seen and experienced, none of it compares to how wrong it was that the Son of God himself should die at all, be separated from God at all, not to mention in such a horrendous physical death. And the ridicule and the shame that he willingly endured. Nothing was ever more wrong than that. And yet that's where God was doing his greatest work of all time. In reconciling, redeeming humanity back to himself. And so you see, in the worst of times, you see God's greatest work. And Paul says, that's why God works in circumstances like mine. In situations like these, where it seems wrong, but that's exactly where God is working. And he is doing his work in us. And that, that, that working through the worst of situations, that incarnational sacrifice of self in this mortal body is not just for Jesus. It's for you and I, as followers of Jesus. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Come with me, he says. And that theology in chapter 2 is bookended. On one side, he says, have this mind, have this outlook in yourself, this mindset Make it, a, make it a, a, a choice of your will and your mind, first of all. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains it. And then he says in verse 12, look at verse 12 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Work out, live out in your life, express in your life your salvation in Christ who gave his life for you. Live out that life, that salvation of Christ. Have this mind be in you, your will, and now live it out, work it out in your actions, in your works. Because, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Did you catch the play there, how he's pulling this together? The will we were invited in to have transformed in, at, at the beginning of that chapter 2, and then following that, we're urged to work it out because God is working both in our willing and in our doing. We actually can do far more than we think we can do by Christ working in us. The problem isn't necessarily our doing, it's our willing. Have you found that to be true? I just don't want to. Or I want to do something else more. And what we need, the way one person put it once, he said that God just needs to jiggle our willer. Okay? Okay? It's kind of like uh, I, I remember things that I've worked on in the past, and one of the tricks I use when I fix things is I take it apart and I put it back together. And it's fixed, and people say, oh, you are so clever. And I said, oh, yes, I am. I have no idea what I did. I really just jiggled things around a little bit, and by jiggling it, you've all done that. You had your, 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 your DVD player, right? And it didn't work, so what'd you do? You bang on it a little bit. Ah, it worked. You just jiggle things around in there. It's magic with electronics. It's fun. Go try this with your computer. Don't try it with my computer, your computer. But that's what God needs to do with us sometimes. He needs to jiggle our willer a little bit. That our will 
is in line with his will. That's what he invites us into. God is at work in you. It's not up to us. God is at work in us, both to will and to do. That's why Paul's willing to pray for them. His, his, the content of his prayer is that God would work in them, and he can pray that way because that's exactly what God has said he's going to do. God is faithful. What he started, he's going to do. He's going to finish. God is working in us, both to will and to do. Paul's seen it in his own life. He's seen it in Timothy's life. He's seen it in Epaphroditus. He's seen it at Philippi. So that both in rejection, in Jesus' experience, in hardships like Epaphroditus and delivering their gift, God was completing his good work for us in Jesus, as well as he's completing their good work. Philippi's, God was completing their good work of giving this gift to Paul through the hardship that Epaphroditus experienced in delivering it. And so we come to chapter 3, which tells us that not only is that true, not only is that how God is working redemptively, but God works redemptively in the midst of hardships so that there we might know him. You have not been redeemed by Christ merely that your eternal address will change. You have been saved out of a bad place and now you're going to this place called heaven where you're going to be in the presence of God forever. Great, because Jesus redeemed me, I have moved my eternal destination from one place to another place. That is not the main reason you were redeemed. That is not the main reason Jesus died for you. In fact, that is incidental. Did you realize that? Your location with God in heaven for eternity, that's merely incidental. That's not the point. Kind of takes the whole thing away about scaring people into heaven, right? That's not the point. The point is a restored relationship with God. And if you are reconciled, if you're restored back into right relationship with God through Christ, when then where else would you be forever than with him? That's what it's about. That's what it's for. And when he rules in his glorious kingdom right here on, a, on earth, and then in a, rest- in a new heaven and a new earth, where will you be right there with him? Because you have been restored into relationship with him. Well, how do we grow in relationship with him? We do that by joining him where he is in his stuff. And if God's greatest work in Jesus was through hardship and suffering, how will I come to know most fully and deeply the heart of God who loves me? I will come to know him in the midst of his greatest work of hardship, even suffering, even unjust suffering. When I'm being wronged in the process, there I'll know this is what Jesus, this is just a taste, a nibbling around the edges of what Jesus did for me. It grabs hold of me. It, 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 it turns our, our lives upside down, especially in the, in the American experience, doesn't it? Isn't that what the gospel did? What the gospel did in Macedonia. These who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They've come here also. And so, and so I'll buffet my body. I'll make it my slave. 
I will deny myself so that I can know him. Verse 10 of chapter 3 summarizes that this way, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that I am also maybe like him in his resurrection, that I want to know him. Think of a, a, a musical artist that you really like. You say, I love this particular artist. You get to know everything about that artist. You've learned all the details. You've followed the bios. You, when, they're, when they're on TV, you, you watch it. And Okay, you got, it? you got a particular artist in mind? Let's say you never listen to their, their best songs. You would never put that song, you don't learn those lyrics, their best work. You don't, you don't, you would never put the, put, put that song on and, and move to the music. No, you would never do that. Well, of course you would. You love this artist and you know this artist and you, you feel what they feel in their music. When you're moving to what moves then, that's when you feel like you know them best. You identify with them in it, right? Isn't the same true with knowing Christ? Wouldn't we know him in the midst by being moved by that which moves him? So don't be surprised that when the suffering, the hardship, the, the injustice of it all seems to crush down upon you, know that God is in the midst of this. He's been there before you. And that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it, working redemptively in this just as he did with Christ and lets you, invites you, calls you to share in that so that you there can know him. And then he wraps it up just with some very practical, how do I take next step into that? That's very conceptual. And so he introduces us to who, who Wayne Platt called Esther and Sophie. And I want to introduce you to not only Esther and Sophie, but also Susie. You get to chapter 4, and we're, we're reminded that the difficulty, these, these hardships that we endure, they often have the face of conflict. It's not just pressures that come from outside, but sometimes it's pressures that are among us. And there might be conflict between us. And there is Yudia and Sintiki. There is, there is Esther and Sophie. And they were laborers together, and yet something has come between them. And there's another one, translated true companion, but that's the meaning. It could also be a personal name, a person whose name means true companion. The, the word is Suzugas. I might not be pronouncing it completely right, but I'm going to go with Susie. Okay? You've got Esther, you've got Sophie, and now we've got Susie. Help these two who were laborers together and have been for some time. Help them to come together. And by, by joining in and, and, and at sometimes personal cost to ourselves to come in and to advance reconciliation between others because that's what matters in the body of Christ. In the midst of personal conflicts, personal conflicts that often stem out of our own desires, our own anxieties, our own worries about what we believe that we are going to need. And he says, don't be anxious about anything. But by prayer with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Even though you have needs, and rightly we do, 
giving ourselves away for the sake of others, even as this sacrificial gift that Paul refers to in sacrificial, well-pleasing, offering terms that they have given out of themselves. They have needs. They could have kept this. They certainly could have used it. I'm sure they needed new chairs in the foyer. I'm sure they, they, they could have bought more coffee for the cafe, and yet they, they gave away because Paul has needs. Even as you give away that which you could keep for yourself to bear the burden of others. And it's in there when that actually causes a going without something, a doing without, a getting by, a sacrifice of some kind. There we know something about God who gave his son for us. God is working in you, even through hindrance and hardship, because that is how God redemptively worked in Christ and how we will grow in our knowing of him by trusting in troubles, trials, or conflicts that God himself is working in us, working through us. Let's put that, that long, wordy back before us one more time. As we remember Paul's letter to Philippi, that Paul is free. We can be free. Free from a self-focused view, the terrible twos, a self-focused view of his own hardships, he's free to see God working redemptively in them. The confidence that God is working redemptively in them is because that's how God worked in Christ. And so it's in sacrifice for others that we'll know Christ, that we'll grow in our knowing of Jesus more fully and we'll live out our faith in the midst of conflicts, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of hardship and needs, knowing that my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We are in Christ together. And his, his humbling of himself for us, that's what we come together at at this table this morning. There was a danger that Paul warned about in chapter 3, a danger of religious ritual that can blind us to our need of knowing Christ. And this table could easily be that. It could easily be a religious ritual. It could, it's, it's, it's a shiny silver. It looks very ritualistic, doesn't it? We do this regularly every month. We gather around this table to remind ourselves of something. And that could easily become a ritual. It comes out of the Passover supper. It's not only 2,000 years old. It's about 1,500 more than that, about 3,500 years old. From the Passover, the exodus out of Egypt, and God gave his people an object lesson, a feast, a festival, a, a, uh, a, a holiday every year that they would remember that he had brought them out, that he had redeemed them from bondage to freedom out of Egypt through the Passover lamb, a, a lamb whose blood was applied over each of their homes for them. And death passed over. And yet by the time that Jesus sat at this table with his disciples, it had become a ritual. It had become a habit. A holiday habit, something we do, it's a fun time together, but the real meaning of it by most was gone. And yet Jesus came to this table, and he put something new into it. And those two new elements in particular are the two pieces we grab hold of 
every month. We remind themselves of what he said about that bread, what he said about that cup.